Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. I trust you've been blessed uh, by this online service so far, uh, especially being that this will be the new normal for, uh, for a while. And so we're grateful for the technology to make it happen. Thinking even 10 years ago, we, you know, no chance we probably would be able to do this. And uh, especially want to say thank you to AJ, our creative and tech director, who is uh, definitely putting in overtime to get this all up to speed and uh, enable us to connect with you guys in this way. Um, because I know, you know, I'm just speaking with uh, a lot of you throughout the past week that we feel the absence of embodied gathering, of embodied presence. Um, even just, it hasn't even been that long since we've gathered and we already kind of feel that uh, desire and uh, how I think this disruption is only reinforcing how important our gatherings are, um, reinforcing the fact that they are God's design for the church um, and his design for us to persevere in the faith is by gathering regularly. And so um, both these things can be true. We can be uh, kind of miss the feeling and um, reality of meeting together in person, and we can be thankful for uh, new platforms to still gather in some form um, and so, you know, we're going to continue. We're going to continue to corporately worship together um, and uh, trust that God will continue to use it to awaken faith, to uh, sustain faith, to strengthen our faith, uh, to uh, sing, pray, and sit under the Word of God preached together. And so if you are tuning in, you have never been to Grace, you maybe haven't been to church in a long time, uh, what you're seeing here on, uh, online is really a function of what we try and do each and every week to uh, sing, to pray, to sit under the Word of God preached. And so uh, that's what we will continue to do, and we will long for the day when we can gather back together. Um, so, um, you know, enjoy this, but don't enjoy it too much. I know some of your introverts are sitting in your bed or your living room, and you're like, this is awesome, like that we could have been doing this the whole time. Uh, so just take it easy, all right? Don't throw your church clothes away. Uh, we will be back. But um, I, I've chosen to continue on in our Exodus series as planned, as opposed to um, switching to uh, maybe a topical series that's directly related to the situations. And, and, and I'm doing that for a couple reasons. Um, first, I, I really do believe that it is God's providence that we are in this book at this time. You know, it was last spring that after a lot of prayer and consideration that I decided we are going to start Exodus in January 2020. And God knew that it was the book he wanted our church in for this pandemic. And it, it, it really um, kind of gives me chills in some ways to look back on our first sermon uh, on January 5th, the beginning of Exodus, where we kind of just discussed and laid out, hey, here are the three major themes we're going to see over and over and over again in Exodus uh, between God's power, God's promises, and God's presence. That every week this book spotlights God's power, it enables us to trust in his promises, and it equips us to walk in his presence. And um, here we are, not knowing then that we'd be here now, how very real those needs are for us as a church. Um, and then secondly, we are doing a lot 
to speak directly to the current situation, to help lead one another through uh, kind of just this cultural moment we're in, which still doesn't feel real in a lot of ways. Um, and we're, so we're using um, our social media channels of Facebook and um, Instagram. We're using blogs and emails. We're using uh, YouTube channels. We're launching new platforms to reach and connect with you what, to just help us all walk together to sustain our faith and joy in the midst of this time. Um, and, and so we will kind of continue to use all those platforms throughout the week. Uh, but all in all, I find it profound that no matter what happens in the world, that the church on some level that next Sunday will gather and they'll preach the next passage and we'll keep going. So with that said, here we are. We've seen the first seven plagues that God has enacted over Egypt, and this morning we will just dive into plagues number eight and number nine, and that is all going to be in Exodus 10. So read along with me as we start chapter 10. We'll start with just the two, first two verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So it it almost seems like it's on repeat here because we've seen multiple times uh, so far in our series in Exodus this, this tension. Okay, follow along with me. This tension of God seeking to free his people from slavery while also sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart so he will not let his people go from slavery, right? It is the clear mystery of Exodus. In many ways, it's the clear mystery of all of God's word of how those things kind of fit together and and how they fit together is mysterious. But even before we dig into the eighth plague, these opening verses provide some much-needed insight as to why God is doing it in this way, right? Why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart and and sending all these plagues? Um, Moses just gave us two reasons there, okay? Um, Number one, that all these signs may be shown to the Egyptians so they may know he is the Lord, Okay, like we've seen that over and over again. God is revealing himself in this way, revealing himself to all of Egypt, and he's exposing all the false gods of their culture. And second, and more importantly, I think, God tells Moses that he and the nation of Israel will be able to tell this story to their children and their grandchildren. By telling the story, Younger generations will hear of what God did to save his people from slavery, and they, in turn, will tell their children, and on and on it will go. And, and I just think this, um, especially this verse in the midst of this um, book, it's so easily kind of just glossed over. So I just want to pause here and just put spotlights on verse number two. Like, just for a moment, okay? God essentially just said, you know, Moses... Kids love a great story. I'm giving you a story here to tell your kids and your grandkids. And in this story, through this story, they will know me. Moses, be a storyteller. 
one of the primary roles and jobs of every generation from Moses all the way up until now. One of the primary jobs of God's people is to tell this story to the generations that come behind them. The reason that the Bible kind of sees the Exodus um, as the premier salvation event in the Old Testament that, that foreshadows the gospel of Jesus Christ is because it's a story that answers all of life's most important questions. Questions like, who am I? Do, do I have any value? Where did I come from? Uh, wh- where am I going? What's this meaning of this journey in this life? And who is God? How can I know Him? How can I be saved? These are questions that we all ask, starting as children. And when they ask, brothers and sisters, do we have a story for them? You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies that has been repeated across history is when um, adults feel it is more necessary to um, just modify and correct behavior in the next generation. To raise up children with just the list of do's and don'ts. Do that, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Don't do that, but do this. To raise them up, to modify behavior as opposed to giving them a story to find themselves in. And and I can't help but think, you know, of all that's going on right now, um, how one of the things that just seems to be clear for many, if not most, is that families have more time together. Generations who normally are always on different schedules and kind of ships passing in the night all of a sudden find themselves together. And so... Parents, grandparents, what an opportunity you have. What a time to share, to discuss, to worship together over the story of God's grace in restoring and saving his people. You know, because a, a huge part of life um, for, for anyone is, is, uh, is understanding what story about the world am I living in right now? What, what story am I believing in? So when you wake up and you uh, swing your legs out of bed and you stand up for the first time, what is that default story that helps you make sense of reality? What's that story that every action you have is going to flow out of? And the biggest problem of the world is how sin creates false stories that people find themselves in. False stories that get chosen over God's story. And just a few that are, I think, um, most popular right now. The false story of romanticism. That you are your emotions, and your emotions are always right. If it feels right, it must be right. So do whatever feels right to you. There's the false story of consumerism. That quality of life is based upon how much you have, and how much you can consume. And the more you have whether money or material possessions, the more valuable you are, the safer you are. The false story of individualism, that you are the center of the universe, that if you just work hard, you overcome obstacles, you try to be a good person, and ultimate meaning and happiness and joy is found from within. These are false stories. Some of the most popular ones that 
this world finds themselves in in 2020. And so the question kind of boils down to, what story are you living? What story are you locating yourself in? And church, tell the next generation the story of the gospel. That God, out of his love and mercy, um, restores and redeems his people through Jesus Christ. And we we are saved for his glory. And and so we now find our story in his story. And and our life is now defined by the call to make disciples, to know Christ and make him known. The church, at any time, is only as strong as as its ability to faithfully and truthfully tell the story of Jesus Christ to the next generation. So don't teach the next generation just manners and good work ethic. Share the gospel. Because after all, we all love a great story. Some great wisdom there before this eighth plague. So let's see what's going on. Let's read verses 3 through 6 in chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of of all your servants and all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Plague number eight, the locusts. We see in verse three that Pharaoh is no puppet of God. Okay, even though God is sovereignly over this whole situation, that Pharaoh is not free from the responsibility of rejecting the word of the Lord. And Moses pinpoints the problem. He asks Pharaoh directly on behalf of God, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh's issue this whole time, his primary foundational issue is pride. The inability to humble himself before the Lord. To wholly surrender himself to God's will and desire for his life. C.S. Lewis, I think, perfectly pinpoints the role of pride in the fallen world. He says this, quote, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, sums it up most clearly when he says, quote, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It was pride that made the devil the devil. It was pride that caused Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree. And it is pride that is keeping Pharaoh from releasing God's people. And it is pride that people today do not believe in the gospel. 
because to be humbled before God, to place God above ourselves, is just a step too far for most. And then the warning about the locusts. They shall cover the face of the land. They'll eat whatever is left that the hail didn't already destroy in the last plague. They'll fill your homes in such a way that has never been seen in your lifetime. This plague, like all the others, it's a direct attack on an Egyptian god. This time it's the god Min, M-I-N, the god of the crops. A god that is now exposed to be powerless in protecting the land before the one true god. Locusts, um, they say, can eat their own body weight each and every day. They can eat their body weight each and every day, but they only weigh two grams. So you think, not that big of a deal. Until you realize that when there is a locust infestation, there are one to two million locusts per mile. It is wholesale destruction. If not deterred, their damage can lead to a long-lasting famine in the land. I know that um, there's not a whole lot of other news stories you guys are into right, right now these days. Everything's kind of dominated by this one, um, you know, just coronavirus and the impact of it. But uh, some of you have seen that right now, currently in East Africa, they are being plagued by locusts. We're, we're going to have a picture to kind of throw up to just show uh, just a visual of what it is uh, for a field to be infested with locusts. It is the worst case that Africa has seen in the last 30 years. And it's interesting, over the last couple of centuries, it seems like every 25 to 30 years, there's another serious case. And, and it's serious. It's, it threatens to upend the whole kind of cultural and economic foundation of these regions. But even still, even with some of these images that we can see, we know that what they are experiencing now is just a glimpse of what ancient Egypt faced with this plague. Because we're told that such a dense swarm of locusts came upon Pharaoh and the land that has never been seen before, nor ever will be seen again. Let's see how they respond. Exodus 10, verses 7 through 11. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said. Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold the feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Um, so so here, here's one of the big differences with the eighth plague with every other one that came before it. Um, now Pharaoh's servants are directly complaining to Pharaoh. They can't handle it anymore. And notice their question. It begins the same way that the Lord asked Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? But the servants say, how long will this go on? And they're being a little more shrewd, right? They, they don't want to upset Pharaoh. That would not end well for them. So they're kind of putting the blame on Moses. How, how long will this man be a snare to us? But then as the questioning continues, you can tell they actually are questioning Pharaoh. Like, hey, do you not understand that our whole land is just being ruined here? 
Do you not understand and see what's going on? This is long-term disaster for us. Don't you see what is happening? Pharaoh, kind of surprisingly, doesn't penalize them, yell back at them. He actually calls in Moses and, and gives this kind of feeble attempt to negotiate. He says, hey, okay, how about this? Just, just the men go. Moses, Aaron, and all the men. How about you guys just go and do the sacrifice to the Lord? The women and children have them stay. Is that a deal, Moses? No deal. There will be no compromises to the Lord's command. So the locusts get sent just as promised. It's even worse than they even imagined. Let's skip down to verse 15 and see his response. They covered the whole face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees and the hail they had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, here it is, the same old story. Pharaoh panics. This time we're told he hastily, he quickly causes Moses in, and he gives another false confession. Goes to show it's amazing how people who are far from God will often try to make a deal with God in times of desperation. God, just get me out of this, get me out of this situation. God, step in. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I get it. I've sinned. You were right. Just get me out of this current moment. But we see all the same signs of a false confession that we saw last week. He never confesses directly to God. He never truly confesses that he's a sinner. He says, just this once. And he never actually repents. Because true repentance leads to a changed heart which leads to changed behavior. Nothing changes in Pharaoh. The locusts disappear, and Pharaoh goes back on his word. It's the pattern. Desperation. The crisis passes, and he's still as prideful as he ever was. Let's keep going. Verses 21 to 23, chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Plague number nine, the darkness. You know, there are certain phrases um, that I will come across in reading and studying the Bible that will just stop me in my tracks, that will kind of arrest my soul. And the end of verse 21 is one of those phrases. And the Lord told Moses to stretch out his hand so there would be darkness over the land, quote, a darkness to be felt. A darkness you can feel. 
it gave me goosebumps in my study even now of just trying to explore what that phrase means. But these final two plagues are, I think, the most profound. We have, we have darkness here, and the next week we'll see the tenth and final plague, the most brutal of all. And they're the most profound and then, because I think they're the most spiritually implicit. They, they, are, they are physical plagues that represent significant spiritual parallels. And, and when it comes to darkness and a plague of darkness, we, we need to try to put ourselves in the context of ancient Egypt. There's, there's no electricity there, okay? The, the only source of light are sun or fire. So, so darkness in this context doesn't just mean nighttime, right? Like, like many of you might be like my wife, right? My wife would consider herself a night owl, right? She is her most productive at night. She gets her most energy at night. I will never understand how she can go uh, kind of a full day, uh, exhausting day with the kids all day and then kind of her energy pick up at night. It's kind of amazing to me, but I know she's not alone. I know there's a lot of you that say, I'm a night owl. You like the dark in some ways. But listen, being a night owl is kind of a recent development, right? In the ancient world, once the sun went down, so did production. They relied upon the sun for everything that they sought to do. If there was no light, there was no work, there was no production, you had to shut it down. Which explains why the sun god was the premier deity in the Egyptian world. It was the top God. All right, even if you haven't recognized all the kind of different gods I've been talking about um, in, with, with, with the other plagues, I, I think many, if not most of you, will know this one. It's the god Amon-Re, the sun god. It was to them the creator god, the god that created all other gods, which is when Pharaoh, when a new Pharaoh would take the throne, he was thought to be adopted as a son to Amon-Re. Nothing rose above it because Amon-Re was as sure as the rising sun. So you can imagine what the response was throughout the land when there was complete darkness for three whole days. The most assured reality of the rising sun that they've ever known, that they've worshipped, was now exposed and stripped from them. What do you do when the thing you rely on most is taken away? It's an interesting question, especially right now. But where we sit in 2020, I think it's easy to read this account and kind of shake our head a little bit and go like, really? Worship the sun? It's kind of hard to imagine. And I will grant to you that does kind of feel strange. It feels a little unrelatable, but we need to understand the deeper truth here. This is not about the sun. It's about that which you put the most hope in in life. The most hope for comfort, for meaning, for joy. There's a quote from a theologian I came across this week who said this, quote, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. That we can relate to, right? 
like that which we admire, that which we love and honor above all else, that's our God, even if we would not ascribe the name God to it. You know the theologian's name who wrote that? His name was Origen. He's not a 21st century theologian. He's not a 20th century theologian. He is a 3rd century theologian. There's truly nothing new under the sun. Our culture today has just as many, if not more, gods than ancient Egypt. We just don't call them gods, and we think we're smarter off because of it. But they are gods. And I think the premier god of our day, the Amon Ray of 2020, is the god of self. Self is the center of our culture's universe, where we put our thoughts and our truths and our feelings above all else. And it's interesting, there were a lot of lesser gods, lesser sun gods below Amon-Re. There was the god of the sunrise, the god of the midday, the god of the sunset in Egypt. Just like today, there are lesser gods that flow from and serve the god of self. The gods of money, of health, of beauty, and your body. Gods of security. Even the god of religion and trying to control God by your behavior. I want to speak frankly here for a moment. These past two weeks, I think a lot of false gods have been exposed in our culture. I think a lot of things that people rely on for joy and for love and for hope and security have been taken away. And when false gods get exposed, when they disappear, it feels like darkness, a darkness to be felt. Let's see how they respond, verses 24 to 29. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. We are all witnesses now to the breakup between Moses and Pharaoh. And it comes after Pharaoh gives one last attempt to negotiate with Moses. He says, uh, if you remember, he first said, hey, just sacrifice here in Egypt, right? Don't go outside the country. Moses said, no deal. So Pharaoh came back and said, okay, just go with your men. Leave the children and livestock behind. Moses said, no deal. So here again, Pharaoh tries and says, okay, your men can go, your little ones can go, but just leave the livestock behind. And once again, Moses says, no deal. Pharaoh's not a good negotiator get the deal done. He must have never watched Shark Tank at all. And because uh, there's an art to it, right? There's an art to negotiation. But he's up against a tough competitor in Moses, even tougher than Mark Cuban, who would not stand down from his terms. 
in these past three weeks of doing a deep dive into the plagues and seeing Pharaoh's responses has been so fascinating to see in real time the struggle that Pharaoh has in submitting to the Lord's command and will. You you get the impression that at this point, he knows in his inner self that God is God and he is not. He knows he's been exposed. He knows he's been outmatched. He knows that all his gods have been exposed as powerless, and yet he cannot bring himself to fully surrender. He is suppressing this knowledge out of pride. He's not willing to hand over the reins. And it's like the Apostle Paul described so clearly in Romans 1 that this is true for everyone. That all people in all times know God in some sense, but they choose to suppress that knowledge, choosing their own glory over God's. That's our world's greatest problem. And yet God, in his mercy and kindness, exposes false gods that we place ahead of him as the worthless idols they are. You know, we often think about the plagues, and we often just think that it is God's judgment, it is God's condemnation on Egypt, this is God's power as a wrathful God, an angry God. But here's what we need to affirm. The most loving thing God could do is destroy our false gods and expose them as powerless to do the things that they promise. It is not just God's wrath in sending the plagues. It is his loving kindness to show Pharaoh and all of Egypt that he alone is the Lord. And it took plagues to get that point across. If it was just God's wrath, you know what would have happened? He would have just let Pharaoh and all of Egypt go about their entire lives believing they were in control. That their gods were true. That nothing bad would happen to them. That would be God's wrath. Let let me put it this way. If you think about a friend or a family member who is currently immersed in addiction of some sort, I'm sure everyone can think of someone that their heart is just hurting for. Would the loving and kind thing to be to just do nothing? To allow them to just day after day, week after week, indulge in their addiction, destroying their mind and body? Would it be kind to never intervene? No way. That would not show that you love them. It would show that you actually don't care much about them. The loving thing to do is intervene. The loving thing to do is try to expose the addiction, to offer help, to get help, to assist in help. And that will always be painful at first for the person who's in addiction. But that is what it will take, just like a surgeon who wounds a patient in order to save their life. 
in the midst of hardship in Egypt and the plagues, God's kindness is all over the place. It's, it's his kindness in revealing himself as the one true Lord, the, the Yahweh, the great I am. It's his kindness in relenting from the plagues. Each time Pharaoh pled, even while knowing that his heart was still hardened, he still relented when Pharaoh asked. And that's because this is the pathway to salvation. When people receive the grace to see their false gods shattered, to see them exposed, and then to turn to the living God for salvation. Romans 1, I said, talks about how we all suppress the knowledge of God and choose self-glory. Well, Romans 2 talks about how it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. You know what? No one ever has gotten bullied into the kingdom. No one has ever gotten threatened into being truly saved. Salvation comes when we experience the kindness of the Lord despite our rebellion, even when it hurts at first. You know, tragically, Pharaoh, even in God's kindness, will not surrender to the Lord. He'll try to partially surrender. He'll try to kind of obey. He'll, he'll give the Lord most of what he wants, but that's not salvation. That's not complete surrender. You cannot follow God with a foot in the old world just in case, right? There's no hedging bets in the kingdom of God. It is all or nothing. It is darkness or light. And the way to walk in the light is not perfect obedience. It's total surrender. For Pharaoh, even the plague of darkness won't be enough. But I wonder about you. What will it take for you to totally surrender? What will it take for you to say, God, I'm following you. I'm listening to your voice. I am all in. You won't ever truly be free until you take that decisive step. Well, as the Puritans always said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun whose kindness melts hearts also hardens them. And Pharaoh was hardened against Moses. He was angry, and then he now gives a threat of his own. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. We will see that soon, that that in fact won't be true. But this will not be the final time Moses hears this statement. Long after the exodus from Egypt, when Israel is camped out at Mount Sinai, Moses is at the mountaintop and he will ask God to see his glory. And in Exodus 33, the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So Moses had to hide in the rock. What would he have seen that day if he looked? The Apostle Paul connects these dots between Moses and Jesus. As we close this morning, I'll close with this in 2 Corinthians 4 to show how this whole Bible is tied together. Listen as I read. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, look, in the face of Jesus Christ. The plague of darkness is overcome by the light of Christ to let light shine out of the darkness. This is the kindness of the Lord, and it makes for a great story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather, even if it's just online. We thank you for the opportunity to be humbled beneath your word. And Father, I pray that you would quicken and stir our hearts for your namesake. I pray that you would equip somebody to say, I choose light over darkness. I choose the one true God over the gods of this world. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray for that decisive step. I pray for the freedom from the chains of sin that you would grant to somebody. And Father, I pray that you would equip us for those who you have saved, to continue on this path, to make disciples for your glory, and to share the story of the gospel to the generations that come behind us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.